All right, folks, this show is sponsored by Anchor. A while back, we switched over to Anchor as our hosting platform for Panel to Panel. And to be honest, it's actually been one of the best experiences we've had when it comes to hosting our podcast. A lot of people think making a podcast is super difficult, but Anchor actually allows you to record and edit your podcast all on your phone if that's what you want to do. Anchor even helps you get your podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other places like that. That way you can get your podcast to a wide audience of different people. And the best part about it, it's totally free. So go ahead, check out Anchor.fm, or download the Anchor app on your phone or through the App Store or the Google Play Store and check it out today. Now let's turn the page and get to this week's episode of Panel to Panel. Good people of the internet, it is time for ComicsUnmasked.com's flagship podcast, Panel to Panel, where a bunch of folks shoot the breeze and talk about comic books and such. Wow, that's going to take that's gonna take getting used to, because yes, as, as you, uh, most folks know, that we have recently gone through a rebranding on ComicsGround.com is no longer, and now we are Comics Unmasked. We are trying something brand new, trying to make it a more like blatantly that we are trying to be the place that unmasks everything, that shows the truth that gets to the heart of what matters about comic books whether it's trying to give creators a, a platform to talk about what matters whether it means giving anybody a chance to talk about what matters whether it be someone who's never written read a comic before or someone that's read every comic in existence before we will give them a chance to show what they care about and what matters to them when it comes to the landscape uh, like, like Stan Lee always says that like every comic is someone's first and we will get to the heart of that with this rebranding and this is our flagship show Panel to panel, where a bunch of folks shoot the breeze and talk about comic books and such. We every week when we can, we try to make it every week. Sometimes stuff happens and it makes stuff complicated, but we try to do every week where we sit down, talk about our favorite books, or talk about our favorite like books turning into into comic book media. We try to talk about it and get to the heart of what we care about. Um, I'm, I'm my name is James Portis. I am here by myself this week, but not really by myself. Mary and Travis are not here. I got the opportunity to sit down with acclaimed writer of books such as Excellence, Noble from Catalyst Prime. Um, the currently at DC, he is writing uh, the Milestone book Hardware, as well as working on the Milestone animated movie that is releasing. He is also working on Aquaman The Becoming, as well as the upcoming ongoing series Aquaman. This is the, the amazing writer that I'm privileged to get, I got to speak to, Brandon Thomas. He has been like grinding in this industry for a long time now, and I am so just in love with what he has created and what he has given me. As previously discussed on a previous episode with the release of Aquaman Upcoming number one, 
I was floored with the ability that Jackson Hyde finally got to be in the spotlight in the way he is. And thankfully, after a long time coming, we finally get to sit down with Brandon Thomas and talk about basically everything. What, what drives him in terms of comic books, everything from his book Excellence that I fell in love with from issue one. And what mattered to me most was talking about uh, Jackson Hyde Aquaman and what is coming in the future for him. I'm excited that I got to sit down with this, with this, good, with this amazing man and what he brings to the table. Um, you can make sure that you can pick up everything that he is working on right now as it releases. There's some amazing things coming out from this man, so please check it out at your local comic book shop. Pre-order. Pre-orders matter, so make sure that you pre-order these books because that way you can pick them up at your local comic book shop. I say every week as my closing statement, please support your local comic book shop. That way they get the best like help in this current climate. Even if it's just their digital platform, please make sure you support that. But Please check out this brand new episode right now. Turn the page with me and check out what we got going on for you. Um, I'll record an intro and outro separately. That way, like okay. we, we can just sort of just jump into everything. But okay. um, like because I got I got the full agenda listed here. The one thing okay. that, that that I always do when I have somebody on is I want to know their origin story. Like, yeah, you hear the like, how'd you get in the comics? But no, like, what really okay. got you into wanting to make this a career? What what was that like? Mm. That number like because straight up for me when I was a kid, my dad would, like saw me watching the Batman. And animated series and was like forget that i'm I, I'm gonna go find you a black superhero he he got me black lightning number three that i actually got recently signed by tony isabella which was nuts but like he got me that and told me here if you're gonna have a superhero you're gonna have a black superhero and then not long after because he had never been in a comic shop before he straight up was like yo uh-huh. you're gonna you're gonna I, I randomly walked in some white guy handed me this and he told me here you go he came home and i have it here in front of me specifically because you're here <laughs> he got me a hardware number one that I never took out of the the, the, the poly ah, So yeah, it's like, yeah. and like, 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 he, like, it was one of those things where, like, like, it was, he, he wanted, he, he, he saw that I wanted like superheroes to look up to, but they didn't look like me. So uh-huh. it was one of those things that at, 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 even at a young age, I found that niche. But for mm-hmm. you, I want to know about you. What was that thing that got you wanting to do this for the rest of your life? Well, um, a little similar story. My father was um, a huge comic fan uh, when he was a kid. He used to uh, uh, buy them from uh, the money he made on his uh, paper route. And I think that he was, (laughs) and he had all of the, you know, all of the originals, you know, the, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, Kenny X-Men. So I think that he was kind of in a way like, emotionally scarred because he didn't hold on to those old Ooh. comics. Oh yeah. And I think that, you know, as as an adult, he was always like, oh man, I should have held on to that, you know, mm-hmm. uncanny uh uncanny X-Men. He'd be rich. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so um, you know, around that time, I mean, I've been obsessed with uh Star Wars uh since the first time mm. I had uh seen it on VHS at my uh, grandmother's house and I took the took the tape from her house and she never saw it again except when I would bring it back (laughs) so that I could watch it you know at at her house so for several years you know Star Wars on VHS like it was always with me like I never went anywhere never went to any other like relative's house like without Star Wars on VHS and I was also obsessed with you know cartoons at the time 
uh, Thundercats, which is still mm. kind of like my my kind of holy grail. I guess my my holy trinity would probably be if the um, Thundercats, Voltron, and Transformers. Like those were okay. my my three, just like you know, greatest of all time. Blah blah blah. So uh, it's uh, I think it's 1992. I don't know what I don't know what like the trigger was or what he saw in me that was like okay, it's time now. So um, he took me to my very first comic store, which okay. is called The Fiction House, That's which cool. is, you know, the, like the name of one of my uh, first uh, Gmail accounts. And I did a <laughs> blog, I did a blog, an, an older blog called The Fiction House too. So he uh, took me to The Fiction House and he basically just let me loose. And there were no, there was no limits. Like there were like wow. no price limits. There was no stack limit. So for years, at least until I got my, uh, my first like real job when I was like 16. Mm-hmm. So for those kind of like uh, three or four years, every month we would go to the comic shop. It, it was like our, you know, like our monthly, you know, voyage or journey together. That is awesome. And I would leave the shop with a, just a stack of books. So we would go in and... I would buy the stuff I was interested in, which was uh, Batman, anything Batman and Batman related. Of course. And more specifically, anything Tim Drake related. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Came, Mary's going to be so upset. Tim Drake is my man. Mm, oh, yes. I, come on. It's like, I, I don't, it's hard for me to find, it, it, it's difficult for me to find people that are just as obsessed with tim drake as i am my my first comic series that i ever picked up was um uh, uh, peter david's um young justice so tim drake it means everything to me so there are like a few specific comics from that first trip that i remember specifically uh spawn number one uh robin two the joker is wild issue three and these were the ones with like the hologram cards like on oh, the cover. Like yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I've seen those, and, yeah. And so I remember spawn number one, Robin to the Joker's Wild, issue three, which is which will be very important later. And then Star Wars Dark Empire number one from Dark Horse. Ooh, so those yeah, and the Dark Horse books, books used to be good, yeah. Yes, they did. So those uh, those three books I remember specifically from that first trip, and you can kind of trace my kind of comic obsessions, you know, at that time around those books, right? Mm-hmm. So Spawn gave me the you know the complete obsession with image comics right so i came in image comics backwards like i not, not backwards, <laughs> but i came in the image comics like you were on the ground floor comics. and then you you went from fan to actually so, like going well, in there. well not only that i had to go back to read todd mcfarland's spider-man i okay. went back to read rob liefeld's you know x-force and jim lee's x-men so i came in with image comics so i had no idea that you know these creators had had these storied careers at marvel and they famously broke away to do their own thing Mm -hmm. and i think it all just really kind of it was perfect for me because everything became a quest right so Mm. i'm reading these image comics so then it's like i have to go on a quest to find out like what is image comics 
Like, right. you know, like what is happening here? Like, you know, where are all these books like on the checklist? Like when the cyber force come out? And so it, it, so it sent me down like the image comics rabbit hole, but then it all on the back end, it sent me down the rabbit hole of, I want to see all the stuff these guys did before, you know, they started image comics. Right. You know, so that led me to Todd Spider-Man and all of those books. And then on the other hand, you know, Tim Drake had just been introduced maybe like a couple of years before. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, before, uh, you know, I had gotten that issue in my hand. So then that sent me on a quest to find every appearance of Tim Drake that existed. And Tim wow. Drake became like my entry character, like into the Batman and larger DC universe, because it's just like, this, I just thought he had the, and we're cussing and stuff, right? So, oh, yeah, no, I don't care. No, 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 I thought he had the coolest fucking costume mm-hmm. I had ever seen in my life. Like, right. I was obsessed with like the little R like on his chest that he could use like as a throwing star. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with his bow staff. Like this, I think this was before you know, Nightwing was carrying like the Eskrima sticks, mm-hmm. you know, like like hardcore. So he was like one of the first like Batman characters that had like a weapon, that right. had, like a, you know, kind of like a, a standard weapon, you know, yes. as part of his gear. And I was just, I was completely obsessed with him. And then because of that, I became obsessed with um, the artist that drew some of his first adventures which was Tom Lyle Norm Brayfogle mm-hmm. so all of it was just it was so great because I I got introduced to these characters and then that just sent me on a journey you know to find everywhere they had appeared before and who had drawn them and who had written these stories and it was just it was just the greatest it was the greatest thing it was just like perfect for me so it was like I'm reading the current stuff and I'm enjoying that but then I'm also making lists of all this other stuff that I have to find and back issue bins and Mm -hmm. you know and it was just it it was crazy it was just it was perfect for me and it was the perfect time for you know for me to get into it and basically since that moment like I've been here like ever since you know there is there has not been you know, a moment like in my life that comics were not like a massive, massive part of, you know, the the stuff that I was reading, the stuff I cared about. And so what happened was after several years of that, and this this is kind of funny in hindsight, not funny anymore, but in hindsight. So the one of the writers that I gravitated towards was uh, Chuck Dixon. Because Chuck Dixon mm. wrote all of those, you know, original like Tim Drake stories, yep. you know, guest appearances and stuff. And I went to a um, Chicago Comic Con. This is before Wizard had taken them over, but I went to right. a Chicago Comic Con. Uh, I think I was about to graduate high school. It might have been like 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I mean, I already knew I wanted to be a writer. Like I've known I wanted to be a writer for just an extremely long time, like going back to, you know, my first stories were basically in between episodes of cartoons that I loved. So I used to write in, I used to write episodes of like Thundercats and episodes of like Transformers. And I don't know how many times I wrote like new Star Wars trilogies after Return of the Jedi. So, you know, I've been <laughs> doing this 
you know, since I was, you know, basically since I was a child, but doing it in very kind of like child ways because I don't, right. I don't fully understand what it is I'm doing. You had but to like grow time, in the style of it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And so uh, at the time, you know, when I went to uh, this convention, I thought I was going to write novels, right? So I thought I was going to write, you know, adventure novels and, and that was going to be my thing. Like, you know, I'm going to be a professional writer. I'm going to write novels about like, you know, spies and, and, you know, all that cool shit. And I walked into a panel that Chuck Dixon was giving called the 10 commandments of comic book writing in those 50 minutes changed the course of my life. And when I left that panel, I'm like, I'm going to write comics. Like, this is stupid. Like, why have I never thought of this before? Like I've been reading comics you know, nonstop for four or five years. And I had been writing things, you know, constantly. Like I was that, I was the irritating kid, like in creative writing class where the teacher is like, oh yeah, when, you know, we want you guys to write a uh, short stories and uh, at least eight pages. And then like the entire class, you know, like groaning, you know, groans. And me, and when I turn mine in, like my shit is in a binder. Because See, I'm kids, the same way. I love this. I, I was so the same like, kid. So mine is like 40 or 50 pages. So it has to come in a binder because you can't mm. put a staple on it. So that's right. basically been, you know, me my entire life. But I just never, I had never considered, you know, writing comics professionally. And I don't know why, but just in that seminar, it was just like, oh, I'm going to write comics. Like, this is, this is dumb. Like, why didn't I think of this before? Mm-hmm. So, um, so then um, I, I went to college and college was kind of like um, I, I treated comic college like comics writing boot camp, mm-hmm. like so those like years because I told myself like by the time I graduate college, you know, I want to be published. And so those kind of four years of college, you know, on top of all of my regular college stuff, I started finding um, sample scripts from mm-hmm. writers that I loved at the time. One of the first sample scripts I ever got was uh, was a Mark Wade Flash script. I don't remember which issue it was, but I got a lot of sample scripts so I could see kind of how the format, you know, worked and how people laid out, you know, pages and pacing and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And then I started writing letters uh, to comics that I was, you know, that I was obsessed with at the time. So like, I mean, I don't even remember all of the ones that I had published, but I had a bunch of uh, letters published in the back of Robin. I think Ooh. I had one or two published uh, in the back of Priest, uh, Black Panther, oh uh, a couple like the Abnett and Lanning Legion. So there's a bunch of old comics, you know, from, from that time that have like, you know, Brandon Thomas letters in the back. And so what that did for one of the, one of the things that did for me was that it, um, it helped me meet editors. So I would, have, I would have letters published in the back of their books, and then I would go to shows, and I would introduce myself, hey, you know, I'm Brandon, you've published a couple of my letters, I really like what you're doing with the such and such, and then, you know, my thing, what I'm telling kind of uh, aspiring, you know, creators, when you first approach editors, you never ask for jobs or mm. assignments. I always ask for advice. I always said, you know, like, how do I break into comics? Like, right. what do I need to do? Like, what... What are the things that, you know, lets you know that like a young kind of untested writer, you know, is ready for the next step. So, you know, we did that for um, several years, I think halfway through college, I started writing a column called uh, Ambidextrous for a comics news site. 
Ooh. called uh, Silver, silverbulletcomicbooks.com. And I wrote that kind of off and on for maybe, I don't know, six or seven years. Like it started at Silver Bullet and went to Newsarama for a little while. Wow. Um, so, and, and, and what the column did was it kind of broadened my kind of uh, contact and knowledge base because what happened was there were people that were reading my columns and I had no idea they were reading them. So um, one of the people that was, uh, that was reading some of my stuff was uh, Mark Millar. This is why, while he was, I think he was coming off uh, Authority. I think he was doing Ultimates at the time and Ultimate X-Men. And, and like most of us, I was completely obsessed with the Ultimate, the Ultimate books. Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, he basically became my, uh, my, uh, my kind of mentor in, in a sense where uh, my editor, the guy that was editing my column kind of set me up a little bit because he already knew Mark was reading my columns. And oh, so, snap. He, so he sent me to Mark to ask him about, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but Mark did a small like Youngblood miniseries that yeah, like barely came that. out. It's mm-hmm. called uh, Bloodsport. So when it was announced that he was doing Bloodsport, my editor is like, hey, you should send Mark some questions about, you know, the new book and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, that, you know, I, I love him. That's fine. And so I reached out to him and he's like, oh, by the way, like I've been reading your column like for the last six months. And like, mm-hmm. I think that you have a lot of talent and, uh, you know, I think that you, you should keep at it. And I think that you can, you know, write comics professionally. So for a little while, he basically fronted me to, uh, to editors at Marvel and then also Rob Liefeld. And was like, you know, if you're looking for, you know, newer writers or guys that you, you have books that don't require writers that have like a ton of experience, which turned out to be like kids books and stuff, you know, you should talk to, to Brandon. Mm-hmm. And my first credit ever was uh, from Rob, Rob Liefeld hired me to script this old Youngblood series that Kurt Busick wrote called Youngblood Year One. Oh, wow. I think like the mid 90s. And it was just, it never came out and it was just in a shelf. So he hired me to script that Youngblood Genesis as a companion to the Youngblood Bloodsport book he was putting out with Mark. Oh, so that was my first published comic. And that was, uh, I think it was July, 2003. And I've basically been in and out of the game like ever since. Like, so these last few years have been the most um, kind of entrenched that, I, that I've been like as a professional writer because mm. before, you know, I would have, you know, books come out for like six to eight months and then I would disappear for a year. Right. And I would come back for a couple of months and then disappear for six months. And then so it was very kind of, you know, what started that trend for you though like was it the, just, the, just the fact of like waiting for a new project or was it just like trying to form a new idea um oh you mean like the streakiness yeah uh, like, like, like yeah. coming in for a little because i noticed there was things like hardcore reloaded that well, that was a mini series and then like you would oh, have yeah, other yeah, things yeah. coming that, through that was from you know that was kind of from my kind of new age period but basically what it was was that and this was this was a mistake that i you know that i think that i did make I was so close to the Marvel and, and DC kind of 
I don't know, ecosystem, churn, whatever you want to call it, that it basically I, I should have been putting more attention towards doing my own books, mm-hmm. right? My own books, my own ideas, and my own characters. But I was so close. That, that's that's one, one of the very you know, frustrating things about this whole thing, because you're so close and so far away at the same time, mm-hmm. but you, you never know the difference. It's so hard to figure out exactly where you are. Like, so I had this uh, this annoying habit of I would find an editor at Marvel that um, you know he, he won't he won't mind me using his name, but a guy like Mark Powers. So mm-hmm. I would hook up with an editors at Marvel, and they would you know they would love my stuff, right? And right. for like six months, I would just keep sending them stuff. You know, I would send them you, <clears throat> you know like plots script samples, you know, pitches, mm-hmm. whatever. And then, you know, and then that person would leave Marvel, oh. you know, wherever. And basically it would be like going back to, to square one. And because I wasn't devoting enough time to my own creations and my own properties, I became completely reliant on my relationships with editors at companies which is a very kind of dangerous spot to be in because editors can quit, they can get fired, they can be, I mean, anything can happen. And most of my early relationships in those days were around, you know, editors. And if something happened to that editor, you know, the relationship is gone. Like like no, no editor who's getting let go or leaving, you know, I mean, maybe some of them, but not many of them are going to go to, you know, basically like someone that's still working there and is like, oh, I, I really like working with this guy. Like you should keep in touch with him. I think he could be good one day. Right. So um, I think that that was a, you know, that was a big mistake that I made in those early days because I, I felt like I was so close. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I was doing like little projects for Marvel, like here and there. And I just fe- I felt like I was, you know, I felt like I was in. Right. I felt like my foot was in the door. And so that basically, you know, was like a, it, it was a bad decision for me to become so reliant on these very specific relationships at those very specific companies. Uh-huh. And eventually it just kind of bit me and you end up, you know, in the, and you end up in the spot that I was at where I hadn't created anything on my own. Um, editors either were gone or were, you know, no longer viable, you know, or no longer, uh, they weren't in a position to be able to like help me or move me along or kind of train me or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like unraveled, uh, you know, it unraveled on me, um, pretty quickly, kind of like in that span between like 2003 to 2006. And then I had to make, some big changes. And so the big change that I made was uh, I had a, a bad falling out with an editor at Marvel and it kind of, that mm. gave me the impetus to go out and create something on my own. And I created, uh, co-created the many adventures of Miranda Mercury with an artist named Lee Ferguson. Okay. And that yeah, I've book, heard about that book. And that book basically changed the course of my life again, even on some very like, you know, long-term 
you know, like long-term footing. So right. it was, um, yeah, it's, it's just been, it, you know, it's been a long road. Some of it has been extremely difficult, extremely um, demoralizing in certain ways, but I, it was just very important to me that I just didn't, I just told myself like, just, just don't die. Just like, don't quit. <laughs> like, don't let, you know, don't let anyone kill you essentially like don't let anyone kill this this dream and so you just uh you you get knocked down you get back up you regroup you attack it from a different you know from a different angle and then you just you know you just keep it going um as as long as you can and eventually for me i got to the point where i became a little more entrenched where the kind of contacts and allies that I had were in, you know, certain positions where they were uh, comfortable enough and kind of secure enough in their positions to mm-hmm. become like real, true advocates and allies for me that I didn't always have to worry would be like dropped off a cliff and then I would kind of go along with them. So that's uh. You know, I think that was supposed to be the short version of that story, but that I mean, I mean, I, I, that, that was still a great story, and it, and like yeah. it ended up like sort of beeline straight where I wanted to go, which was kind of where you were talking about where you weren't really creating your own stuff, but then yeah. you sort of like sort of found found this balance where you would create your own stuff, but then you would follow your own dreams and create and, and get the opportunity to write one of your own trinity, which I had. Never never knew you wrote this book because I remember picking up this book at, at, at my local library when I was like in high school and then I Which found one was it? Voltron oh yeah I, I found I, like because I was doing my research like going over everything that I hadn't known that you wrote and I, and I saw that you wrote the Voltron book that I read as a kid and my yeah. brain just like shattered and I'm just like wow I've been following him for so much longer and it's just like, <laughs> how, like it, 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 it kind of blows my mind how you find that balance of creating your own stuff but also getting to play in other people's sandboxes and what is that like yeah. for you uh it is it, it's amazing i mean that that's kind of what that's what you want right because when you are doing when you're doing your own create creations your own characters you're basically unleashed right you are right. like unfettered like you don't have any there's nothing that that says no right there's no there's no one that says like oh, well, you can't do that with the character or that's gonna, you know, bump up against like long-term plans we have right. for this character and this other thing. And so I think that it's, it's, it's and, and again, it's one of those things that, you know, companies, editors, and, you know, potential employers like to see, right? They mm-hmm. like to see that you don't need everything right they like to see that they want to see you're capable of making something on your own well yes making something on your own and when it's something that is that you've created you don't there are no crutches right so you know so for instance you know i would never aspire to to you know to do this but if if i was writing a batman book and i did a bad job at it that book would still be profitable. 
right? Mm-hmm. They would still, you know, make money on that book just because of name recognition, right? right? When you create something for yourself, you don't have any of that. Like you don't have anything to fall back on. There's mm. no like, oh, I bought this book because I've always bought this book. It's basically you out on your own. And they, you know, it basically says something. If you can write something on your own, and even if it doesn't sell like great, if you can get it in the hands of someone and they read it and they're like, this shit is good. Mm. You know, like, I don't, I don't care if I'm the only person on earth that, you know, that, that got this, but this shit is good. And, and, you know, it's, it's perfect. You know, this falls into the Miranda Mercury thing. So when I was doing um, Miranda, I basically uh, carpet bombed like DC and Marvel with uh, samples of the book. So like when, when the book came out, I basically sent it to anyone that I had ever had like any conversation with at any major company. And at that point, okay. that was actually quite a few people. So that book uh, ended up in a bunch of uh, DC uh, editorial offices. And one of the offices that it ended up in was a um, guy named uh, Sean McElwitz. And he was like, I don't know if he was an assistant or associate at DC at the time. So he read Miranda Mercury. He, he had also uh, read Ambidextrous too when I was writing it. So I should, okay. you know. So, so he had some kind of passing familiarity with me and, you know, whatever. And he, you know, reads Miranda and he's like, like, what about this guy? Like, why don't we get, you know, Brandon in here and get him working on some, you know, like some one shots, some fill-ins, some annuals, you know, these are like the kind of opportunities that, um, you know, some of the bigger companies have to kind of try out kind of right. unproven talent. A lot of what they're doing now is the anthology. They're using mm-hmm. the anthologies for, uh, for, for that reason, too. So anyway, Sean goes in and he's like, you know, uh, what about this guy? Uh, unfortunately, at the time, and I'm not going to tell this story, I basically had like a falling out with, a, you know, a pretty serious power player at DC Comics over a fill-in issue of Robin that I got to wrote, that I got to write. So um, because of that, I couldn't work there, right? So I I wasn't allowed to work at DC. Oh, okay. For, you know, I mean, (laughs) you don't have to do the the math, but, you know, if if someone is enterprising, you could go back and kind of see who might have been there then that's not there now. and Totally, totally get it. Totally but we're not going to get into that. So anyway, Sean wasn't allowed to hire me at D.C. when he was at D.C. So fast forward three or four years later, Sean's not at D.C. anymore. Sean's at Skybound. Ooh. He's at Skybound Entertainment. He's now editor-in-chief or senior editor or whatever his title was. He's at Skybound. And Skybound wants to uh, branch out and start producing more books by other creators, probably so they're not as reliant on Kirkman's. um, (laughs) I'm not sure, you know, if that was. As someone who has a vendetta against Kirkman for trying to carry the entire weight of image on his back, I appreciate you you making that reference. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was for several years, that was the job. That, right. was, that was you know the job of of that book to carry image but anyway 
you know, I, I, you know, I love Robert, you know, Robert's one of my biggest, you know, friends and advocates in the game. But at the time, Skybound wanted to branch out. They're like, let's, let's do some more stuff. Like, let's find some, you know, some other creators and, and put out some, you know, some other books. Mm-hmm. And Sean remembered me from his DC days and not being able to hire me. So then Sean reached out to me and he's like, hey, look, uh, you know, I love Miranda Mercury. I couldn't work with you then. I want to work with you now. And that moment changed the course. That moment basically put me where I am today because Sean was at a good company with good people working at it that were stable in their jobs. So there wasn't a lot of churn, you know, involved. And Sean, Sean is still there. Like I'm still working with Sean. And that was, this was probably a maybe like 2012 for 2013 so basically you know sean reached out to me and the first thing i pitched him was horizon even though i did have excellence it had had a different uh i'm waiting i'm waiting on my kickstarter book it's it's fine we'll get there we'll get oh yeah yeah no it's they're actually um they're shipping pretty soon i think i think if you're in australia or like South Asia, you probably have yours. That's already, not fair, but all right. Yeah, yeah, because of the uh, like the you know the supply chain issues, they had to do like a staggered ship, which they did not want oh. to do. But you know, it. I think it'll. It, they should be here. I think we're expecting them before the end of the year. Okay. So crossing fingers. So it should be in the next month or so. Well, like that, the, the uh, Kickstarter's the last update said October, and then I had I had, I had to move, so I emailed the uh, the manager and had them change the address for the me. address. Yeah. And now we're still waiting at the end of November, and I'm just like, I need it, but it's fine. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get think, to excellence. I think they may be here pretty soon, but. uh but yeah, so I pitched him Horizon and he loved it. And then that became my first, you know, Skybound slash image book. Okay. And then from that point, everything kind of, you know, fell out of that. You know, like Horizon ended, but we still love working together. So then I pitched them Excellence and then they offered me Hardcore. And then it just kind of went out from there. And once Excellence came out, that basically changed the entire game. Right. Like once excellence came out, then conditions at DC had changed. Certain Mm -hmm. people that were gone were, you know, good and gone. And so then you just like you just like gave me what I needed, but that's fine. Um. The door the door reopened there, and um, you know, so I've been having a you know a great time doing stuff with them, Mm -hmm. and um, I've worked I worked for IDW like actually on a project that. That is that is never going to come out. It was oh, like attached right. to a. It was attached to a, a movie whose release got messed up because of the pandemic. Oh. So we were working like on a prequel comic to like a movie that we weren't sure when it was going to come out or in what format. And so, Tragic. you know, basically, I've uh, you know, I've had a pretty, I've had a pretty exciting run these last, you know, three or four years. That's what's um, up. You know, continuing to work, continuing to do excellence, and then uh, also doing kind of, you know, projects spinning out of that. Most of them for DC. So mm-hmm. DC is, uh, has uh, turned into uh, home base uh, for a little while, and I'm really, you know, enjoying the opportunities there. I love the editors that I'm working with. Very, um, very supportive, and, you know, it's 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 been it's been great it's been a pretty 
it's been a pretty great run these last four years. I did Lion Forge's flagship book. Oh, yes. It was yeah, so yeah, with good. My old, with my old friend, uh, Joe Illich. You I know, miss Joe it. Joe Illich was actually, he actually edited Miranda Mercury. And so we know each other from way back. And, you know, it's it's just one of those things where you just, it's a, it's a good reminder that you never know uh, what's coming next. And it's a mm-hmm. good reminder to not be an asshole because you Definitely. don't know you know, you don't know what's coming in your future. Like you don't know who's going to get into, you know, jobs, you know, at certain times and be able to offer you, you know, resources or opportunities. So, you know, I mean, you, you'll never get it. You know, you never get it a hundred percent, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, people are people, but you know, if you can, I've, I've tried to make it a point. I started my ambidextrous column in 2001. Uh-huh. And all the so that is that was basically 20 years since I started that column. And I've tried to, you know, to always be very, uh, very professional, very right. uh, reasonable and very, um, you know, it's it's not hard for me because I because I love I love comics. I love comics so much. I just love every not everything about them, obviously. Right. But, um, you know structurally and business practices blah 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 we can talk about that forever (laughs) and that's not just a a comics problem that's more of a kind of a larger entertainment problem right kind of exploitation and stuff like that but the actual just i love the process i love writing script well i don't like writing scripts i like finishing scripts Mm -hmm. (laughs) when i'm writing it sometimes i i don't enjoy it because it's, it's just like this should be easier. I should be faster. Like this dialogue should be better. So I enjoy having finished scripts and turning them in. Like it's the, you know, it's the best feeling in the world to have turned something in. And then I love to watch a comic take shape. Like I love to see, you know, the pencils and then the inks and then the colors and the letters. And I Mm -hmm. I love the whole process of like watching the whole thing kind of come alive. And I like this idea of working and, you know, I was, you know, for me, it's always like a sports analogy for me and and a lot of different, (laughs) a lot of different things to me turn into sports analogy. So I like working, you know, with this little team and, you know, that's how it was when we were creating, when we were making excellence, we had a feeling, right? You're, you're working right. on something and you're just like, first of all, you have a feeling about the quality of it. And then you have a feeling about the necessity of it. Mm-hmm. And when we were working on that book, I mean, we're still working on it, but when we were working on it and no one knew that it fucking existed or what it was, we just had a feeling. It was just like, it feels like this is gonna change the game kind of this book it Mm -hmm. feels like comics needs this book and it felt to me like as a as a writer it felt like the culmination of everything that i had done up to that point like it felt like a natural progression you know from you know, I'm, I'm probably drawing the line in the wrong order, but, you know, from like Miranda Mercury to Voltron to Noble to Horizon to it, it, it all felt like it was on a line, right? Mm-hmm. And it was all leading me 
to excellence and and at that and <laughs> and you know without getting too you know without patting myself on the back too no hard, no like that's a, like, yeah it it's a great like book at, it felt like I was at the height of my power mm-hmm. right it felt like I know I know how to write this book like I right. know what this book is about and it's one of those things one of those decisions that um you know, you look back on it and you're like, oh, I'm glad I made that decision. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad I pitched Skybound Horizon and not Excellence. Deleted time. At, th- at that time, I didn't know how to write Excellence yet. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't developed. I had never done, like, a monthly comic before mm-hmm. or a comic that had you know, gone past, I think my longest is Horizon. Horizon went 18 issues, but it mm-hmm. could have gone way past that. But a, an important lesson I work, I learned from Horizon is I went into Horizon thinking I was going to write 50 to 60 issues. So it's paced that way. Like it, it's a very kind of like deliberate, comfortable pace that that book is operating at that it shouldn't have been on because I was never going to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So I write excellence like the house is on fire. Like that's how excellence is written. Excellence is written like it's going to end at any moment. Like I I know, I know, you know, we're exactly where it ends and we're going to reach that point, you know, thankfully. But that was an important lesson that I learned from Horizon because in my head, I thought I was writing my Vertigo book right and mm. all classic vertigo books are 60 issues so in my head i'm like this is going to be like 60 issues or something and because of that there were very um there were cool things about horizon that no one ever got to see because they were like planned for like year four so when it came time to do excellence it was like let's just imagine there isn't going to be a year four so if you so write the tightest leanest meanest version of this story possible and if you have the opportunity to do more you always leave things in a in in place where you can do more there are more stories to be told there are more characters we want to explore but if we only got you know like x amount of issues of this book you know would you be satisfied so write kind of like the shortest tightest most concise version of this and what happens is Everything moves faster. Everything is more intense. Everything is more immediate. Everything is more important. Uh And you can feel that in the storytelling. Like it, you know, it feels like the whole thing is just going to come apart, like at any moment. And that, those are the things, you know, from reading comics that keeps you coming back to a comic, like that kind of feeling. And that here's the feeling. There is urgency there is urgency. In like any issue could be the penultimate issue. So you have to plan that ahead of time. Kind yes. of and it's just, a, even if it's not that, it's supposed to feel like that. And when you tell yourself you don't have 60 issues, it gives you like an intensity that, you know, that I think that you can see in the work because mm-hmm. you know that it, it's not, you know, it's not patient. There's, there's nothing, every single scene that is in the book, like, has to be in this book, like, in this specific spot at this specific time. So, you know, that that's really kind of how 
that's kind of how things evolved. And then once X right. came out, that completely changed the perception of me as a writer. And when excellence came out, people were like, oh, he's good. He's ready. And, you mm -hmm. know, I might have been ready before. I was ready before. But, you know, there's like ready and then there's ready. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the more you do it, the more experience that you get, you just become more ready. So, you know, that's kind of how I got back into D.C. When I was at D.C. before, I wrote one issue of Robin. I think it, was, it came out in maybe 2007. It was yep. Robin issue 167. Yeah. And, you know, I was ready then. And if I had gotten into D.C. then and had like a little kind of more seasoning, you know, I think it could have worked out. But at this point, it was like, I just need like a little seasoning. Like mm -hmm. back then I needed like a ton. And that's something else that an editor is always looking at. Like how much time is it going to take me to do this book with him? Like, am I, am I going to have to like, you know, rewrite and replot and like, it, it, basically, am I going to send back a script to him? That's just like all revision. It's mm. just like, oh, we need to do this better. We need to do this better. This doesn't work. You know, cut this panel here. Like you, cause you want, and editor, being an editor for, you know, a comic book company, especially one of the majors is, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. There is no company, there's no publisher out there that has the exact amount of editors that they need to for all of their projects. They just don't. Maybe Skybound, but other than them, no. Everyone is, is, is overworked and everyone is kind of basically being pushed to the limit. And you basically want your script to present the least amount of problems mm -hmm. and notes for them so that they can get back to any of the 800 other things that they have to do. So, right. you know, that, that's the goal is to, you know, like don't, don't create additional, pro don't create too many additional problems, you know, for your editor. Okay. So, okay. So from here, I have like three blocks that I want to cover okay. my, my specifically. And I, like, I want to rewind a little bit to excellence because you basically gave the groundwork of how the book came about and what it sparked that change for you. But I honestly, the book means so much to me to the point that I did fund the Kickstarter. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I really want to highlight this yeah, book yeah. that like no one see, like, like, seems to appreciate, but then like there's that core audience that gets it because like yeah. when we were kids, everyone would like wanted there to be like a black version of Harry Potter that you could look like, like see and actually matter. Like the freaking, like, the freaking Dean Thomas jokes were afoot everywhere. But then you went above and beyond that and made it so much more like you said okay we're, we're gonna have wands we're gonna have magic but then we're gonna make it the secret society that protects everybody and makes it more than that create this entire mythology like ha like there's even hints of sexism throughout the entire thing has the entire black like, like like family structure and the yeah. toxic masculinity baked into it that you can yeah. teach like, like young black men, men to appreciate and i just like what, how, I, I, where do you get off having that much power in one like, like the, the first issue alone like how like how do you do that <laughs> well uh, let's say okay I, i'll i'll say it you know honestly and this is you know like no bullshit the first issue of excellence is one of the best things that i've ever written i, I agree like, <laughs> like easily it's it's one of it's one of my favorite scripts 
every once in not every once I want to say every once in a while it makes it sounds like I, like I suck but every few strips you'll get one and you'll be like okay this is it this is it this is the shit like I can I can I can feel I can feel this working like this is doing what exactly what I want it to do right. and for me when it came to excellence the, the 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 key of it and also the thing that makes it kind of uncomfortable excellence is i don't want to say it's me but it is me it, it's like i have a i have a, you know my best friend you know read the book and this was his, this was his like commentary he says this is the most brandon brandon thing ever <laughs> and it took me a while because there, there, you know, there's a lot of me in Miranda Mercury. There's, yeah, I'm in everything, right? I'm in Voltron. Right. Like you put yourself in the I'm in Noble. Right. Just, just the way that I feel like the world is supposed to be and the world is supposed to operate and the way that people are supposed to treat each other and their, the importance of friendships and loyalty and all of that stuff. Is, is, is baked into kind of everything that I'm doing. But for excellence, excellence was very, very personal to me because for the, I won't say for the most part, the relationship between Spencer and his father is unfortunately the relationship between me and my father. Hey, and so <laughs> it took me a long time to get to the point where I was comfortable putting that stuff out there. I mean, there was a point where, you know, uh, where my mother would like read the issues and she would be like, why did you put that in there? <laughs> right? Because there, there are like specific scenes that obviously the, the kind of magical trappings and stuff of it are, you know, are not true, but things that happened, feelings that I had, you know, kind of like about and during our relationship, it's, mm -hmm. it's in the book. It's there. And I feel that that makes the book, it makes it feel more real. I mean, that, that's what we mean when, you know, and, and, and let me say that excellence is real tagline is also one of like my masterpieces. I mm. typically suck at writing taglines. I just do. But for some reason, you know, that excellence is real thing came very so early and it stuck because like that's what the book is and to me you know it means it means a hundred different things but what that means to me is that the relationships and the and the emotional stakes and kind of the emotional damage that some of the characters have you know unintentionally done to each other is real mm. that shit is real and a lot of that book is is lived in you know by me but the cool part is that I'm doing this book and then there are parts of it that Kari is living in. There oh. are parts that Emilio is, you know, like our relationships like with our grandmothers were like all Oof. very, very similar. Oh, that first issue. One of those where, you know, initially, you know, initially it came from me, but that experience was shared by a lot of the people that I was even working with at the time. So that is what made us feel like, oh, we've got something here. Because if I'm writing something 
if I write a, you know, a, the the haircut scene. Let's talk about the haircut scene. The oh, haircut yes, scene please. in issue one is basically like one of the most memorable scenes in that script. And Kari has said, that's why I did this book. When I got to the haircut scene, it was just like, okay, yeah, this is the book I should be, you know, devoting several years of my life to to, mm-hmm. to illustrating. And I wrote that scene and it was very, you know, personal for me. But then when Kari got and he was like, it was the exact same way. Like I had like the exact, <laughs> almost the exact same story and relationship, you know, Man. with the book. I mean, there is a, there is also like an emotionally kind of like wrenching scene in Excellence 3 where, where Spencer goes and visits, you know, Gigi and he basically oh. kind of enchants her uh, basically. So she yeah. like comes back to herself and, um, you know, Kari, I don't know if it was his grandmother or I, basically Kari had a um, had a relative who um, who had Alzheimer's. Oh. So Kari like drew that scene like in tears. And it's just, there's just so many just little things like that. And it's been such an amazing experience because I've been able to I've been able to 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 learn about Kari, you know, you know, doing this book and learn about Emilio dur- during this book and things about our lives that, you know, we all grew up in completely different places with like, you know, some similar family structures, but there are like things that were universal mm-hmm. in our relationships that were reflected in this book. And that's why we felt like we we have, there is something here because we are like three random, three or four, I should, you know, I I shouldn't uh, exclude Darren. Like, so we (laughs) are like four random dudes, completely different families. We're not the same ages, but there are stories, there are things that are happening in this book that we can all project, you know, onto our own lives. And that's why we just thought, we were like, there's something here. we feel like there's something here. And Beautiful. to have that book come out and to have the, the response to the book has just been, been enormously gratifying, you know, not just as, you know, like a, you know, a writer and I created it, but it's just, just as a, a human being. I mean, mm-hmm. some, of, some of the mail and stuff that we get for this book and because of this book has just been really just really just affirming. And oh, yeah, really, no. I, like, I remember when the book know. first came out, and it was like, I remember, like, I saw this solicitation. I was like, there's no way this is happening in Image. There's no way this book exists. And I, I like, because like, it was on the time Bitterroot was coming out, and I, I saw yeah, this, uh-huh. and, and, I, and I saw this book coming out, and I'm just like, how does this exist? There's no way. Like, like, because I remember how great Kari's artwork looked and other things yeah. that I'd seen him in. And I, like, I remember you from Noble. So I'm like, but this can't be, they couldn't have put these two together. It's not possible. No, and then I sit but... down and I read it and I'm just like, oh my God, my heart is breaking. Like, I feel all this pain of like trying to exist and be around my father and yeah. you like tore my heart out. And, and it's like, I own every issue now because you keep pulling me back. Oh my God. This, the net, oh. Oh man, this the next issue when twelve oh. comes out, it's just gonna. Oh, emotional destruction. That was the <laughs> one thing when I moved recently. Like when I I went to the nearest comic shop and I was like, I don't know what else is coming out, but like excellence 
every milestone book and, and like an Aquaman. I need you to put them on my pull list. And then they were like, all right, man. So like, it just, <laughs> you, that right there, you have harnessed that and you've created that kind of like passion. And when everywhere else in the industry, it doesn't feel like it's there. And it's just like, and then you, you go from this book and you get your hands on literally my favorite comic character of all time, Jackson. Because I remember, I, 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 like, I, I we, we did an episode tribute for the first issue that came out a while back, and I talked about how when I was a kid, I, I was picking up every issue of Aquaman just because I liked the character, like, mm-hmm. me, like me being a mixed kid in the comic shop, everyone like would just take me as the black kid and not appreciate it and whatnot. I'm sitting here and loving Aquaman. And then he dies during all the crisis nonsense. And then yeah. Blackest Night comes out. And then Brightest Day comes out. And, and then Jackson walks in. And I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> th- th- they put me on the page with my favorite superhero? Oh, okay, yay. And then he just disappears for like six years. And I'm like, yeah. wait, wait, come back. And I'm like, I'm seeing him on Young Justice. And he's here. And like, he's in this new form. And then, yeah, yeah. Like, and then Jeff Johns puts, like, spits him back out in Rebirth. And then, then Ben Percy writes him for a little bit. And then my friend Jordan writes him for those couple issues yeah. for um, Kel- uh, Kelly Sue. During Kelly, Kelly Sue's work. And yeah. then you, I don't, I, I don't know what you did, but then you just like, like, like just you and Future State made oh. him everything that I ever oh. wanted him to be. Dude, listen, listen. Okay, I talk about Excellence One. That future, that first Future State script is also just wonderful i felt i felt (laughs) i felt powerful when i wrote that future state script and in the story to that is so hilarious so you know i'll try to tell the the short version but it's me so it won't be short oh that's cool no um, i don't have a time limit i'm here let's do this yeah yeah so so i am um uh the uh I, i got in touch with um, an editor named uh, Andrea Shea. So Andrea um, knows She's amazing. I I love her too. She will be getting a shout out in in, in the tweets because I I love her to death. So uh, I think she's pretty close with Kari or close with Kari or Kari's girl or, you know, both of them or one of them. I'm not sure. So anyway, um, when the last con that I did... (laughs) before you know the world just blew up mm-hmm. it was um uh, new york comic-con and uh i forget which year it was basically it was the year that excellence um had launched and it was the first time that i met emilio and darren in person like i met just at like earlier shows and we knew of each other and right. obviously we've been working you know we we knew of each other and we have both had a skybound connection so he had done a bunch of stuff. He's actually one of uh, Robert's like oldest friends in comics. Like Robert and Kari did a, did did an issue of Sleepwalker, I believe, for Marvel Comics that like okay. no one remembers except for them and me. And so they have always been close. So, um, you know, Kari's always doing something at Skybound. Like he, you know, he did Tech Jacket for several years he did a couple mm-hmm. of like invincible like short like invincible stories and you know i was working at a uh, skybound doing horizon and we're putting excellence together me and uh sean makowitz 
And he's like, we're talking about artists. And he's like, what about Kari? I was like, Kari's not going to draw this. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I was like, Kari would be amazing. Like, Kari Randolph is like exactly who we want on this book. The book will look right. Mm -hmm. The fashion will be on point. The kind of New York, kind of Brooklyn state of mind will be on display everywhere, which is exactly what we want. But it was just like, Kari's not going to do this book. Like, this is, you know, I, I, just, I don't think we can get him. Mm -hmm. And Skybound has this habit. Anytime I tell them that I don't think we can get someone. It they basically <laughs> they they find they they think that that's a challenge, right? <laughs> so when I was doing Hardcore Reloaded, they were like, "Who do you want on covers?" I was like, "Well, we can't get him, but I would love Nick Klein. You know, I would love Nick Klein. Like I love what he did on uh, on Drifter with um, I think Ivan Brandon wrote that book, but it's right. just a just a luscious, gorgeous like." space sci-fi mystery thing with like cool aliens and I, I just love this so I'm like you know I would love to get Nick Klein but we can't get him because I think he was I think he was at Marvel at the time he might have been drawing Captain America I think this was pre this was before he did Thor with uh Donnie which okay. I think he's still doing but I was like yeah, we, we can't get him and you know they came back and they're like we got Nick Klein now what? So, like, they, so that that always happens with Skybound. So that was one of those things where I just told Sean, I don't think we can get cards. I don't think we can get them. And so Sean basically made it his mission, like, oh, we're going to get cards. So, you know, he put us on the phone together. We had a nice conversation. Then he read the first script. And then, you know, the rest is history. So anyway, he's good friends with Andrea Shea. And so um, at that same show that I met, uh, that I met the rest of the excellence team. I also met her, mm -hmm. and she was like, you know, uh, you need to be working at DC. I was like, yeah, I agree, but you know, <laughs> I can't work at DC right now because it was such and such. And so, you know, fast forward a few, a, maybe I want to say five months, five to six months later, you know, the such and such was no longer in play, mm. and then Andrea is like. You know, like, let's get it. So <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, all right. So uh, it's funny. So Andrea brought me back in. But before we actually had the chance to work with each other, I did some smaller projects for, like, other people. So I did, like, uh, the first thing I did when I kind of, you know, came back to D.C., I did, I think it was an eight-pager. I did one of those short stories for one of the anthologies. And uh -huh. it was an Aquaman-Frankenstein team-up. And so I was like... Oh, that's awesome. I was like, that is very I, I awesome. Absolutely yes. want to, you know, want to have, you know, Aquaman on Mars. And then that, you know, baby ant, it turned into this whole kind of like adventures and babysitting thing where like Arthur right. loses, Arthur Sitter cancels on him. So he has to bring Andy with him to Mars. And then they go on this, you know, adventure together. And, you know, it was, it was fun. And I just, you know, and I loved it. And, um, you I know, remember it was, that book. It was, it was basically, uh, I think the anthology was in what's called like The Doomed and the Damned. Yeah. So um, it was one of those like Halloween uh, theme ones. But I did a story for that. I did a little eight pager that had steel in it for, um, it was like Dark Knights, like multiverse of something. It was, <laughs> it was a cool cover with, it was a bunch of like, it was like the zombified super pets on it. Oh, Drawn dear. by Chris Burnham. So I did a steel story there. 
I did a little uh, Superman story for the digital first um, Superman okay. series that was coming out. Uh, I really love doing that. So it's like where the key um, breaks into the Fortress of Solitude and then like turns it into like a tower of traps for Superman. So he right. gets back and then he gets depowered. And basically I pitched it as like Die Hard in the, the Fortress of Solitude. Like a depowered Superman has to survive like, you know, a weaponized Fortress of Solitude. And, uh-huh. you know, but, but it was super cool. So that's what I did kind of like working up you know, back to Andrea and, um, you know, she was the Aquaman editor at the time and they were putting Future State together. They were almost done with it. I actually got into Future State pretty late. And so I pitched what you read, basically. I pitched that two-parter with, you know, Jackson and Andy uh, are, uh, they're together and then they're lost and then they find each other again. That was, you know, that's basically the gist of what the, what the, mm-hmm. the two-parter is. And um, she loved it. A bunch of people at DC loved it. And I thought that was going to be like, you know, one of my first kind of major things at DC. And then they decided, you know what? Um, you know, the Aquaman book's going to be canceled. And we don't know if we want to basically like waste, not waste, I shouldn't say waste, that sounds way too harsh, but we don't want to use a future state slot for a book that we know is already going to be canceled, right? Right. So in the meantime, you know, uh, the bat office contacted me and they're like, uh, could you write future state outsiders for us and make it real cool and do it real fast because the person that we had on it didn't work out. So we need something really fast. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And then that turned into that, you know, cool uh, outsider story featuring, you know, Black Lightning, Katana, mm-hmm. The Signal. And that's something that I keep returning back to over and over again. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, so I'm, I'm working on that, you know, the Aquaman thing is dead. And then I think the last issue of Aquaman comes out and the Aquaman fans basically like erupt. Oh yeah, no, it, it was it's angry. Like, it was rage. It's like, why are you canceling this book? Like, why is there going to be no Aquaman book? You know, from that, you know, from this point on or whatever. Right. So then, I I, had, I was already writing Future State Outsiders and maybe something else too. But basically, they came back to me and they're like. I know this is going to like drop a bomb into your schedule, but do you still want to do Future State Aquaman? Like, you know, we're we're back on. Like, we're we're mm-hmm. back. And I was like, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that script was just, um, I mean, some things you just like feel, right? You just like right. feel it like in your chest, like when you were when you're writing it, when it just feels like this is so cool and this is working and then we got uh daniel uh sampieri to draw it and then we got my old friend adriano lucas to color it and Mm. you'll like you'll like this adriano colored the voltron year one series that i did for dynamite and when he did that he basically became like, I became obsessed with him for life because, you know, I, I was not getting paid a lot of money to write those scripts. Mm-hmm. And my, my goal was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write this script. Like they're paying me like five grand for it. 
Like you, you're not going to be able to tell like how much I'm getting paid to write this script based on my effort that mm-hmm. I'm putting into it. And Adriano was doing the exact same thing, but on the colors. Dang. The colors that he gave to this book were just, uh, just immaculate. And I'm like, there is no way. I'm like, this dude is working as hard as me, you know, for almost like no money. So like, right. this is a dude that I will lay in the street for like, <laughs> until the end of time. So when they t- when when Andrea told, and I think Andrea knew this story too. So when Andrea told me that, oh yeah, 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 we got uh, Adriano on uh, on uh, on the Aquaman, and I was just like, okay, all right, we're about to we're about to clown now. So right. when I wrote my future state books, when I wrote Aquaman and Outsiders, it was basically from the perspective. This is what I'm talking about: urgency. It was from the perspective. This these may be the last DC comics I write for the next you know whatever ten years. Whatever mm-hmm. the, the, the point of time it was between that Robin issue and here. If I don't write any more DC comics for the next you know ten to fifteen years, I want these comics to be memorable. Like I want there to be scenes and images and moments that people are just like you know I want people to remember. You remember when Brandon snapped the fuck off on mm-hmm. Future State? Mm-hmm. That that was like my mind, my mind state. Like that was the that was how I went into these books. Love and this so that much. first script for Future State Aquaman, it just felt so it was I was really proud of it. And I'm, you know, yeah, you know, you you write a lot of stuff, but there are certain things that are just like, yeah, you know, I, I got everything I wanted. Mm-hmm. you know out of this script like it felt paced correctly it felt emotional it felt exciting and then it started being drawn like then daniel started drawing it and it was just like holy shit like this is gonna be like i think people are gonna like this like just seeing the pages come back and then adriano's cut man nobody does skies like <laughs> lucas there's nobody there's no I, I work with some amazing colors and i'm working with them now but there is something about what Adriano does with skies. I'm always it's next level used to put like, you know, skies or something, in, you know, into the book. And when, you know, we did this story about, you know, it's basically kind of like parallel realities. They keep going to all these different worlds and interacting with all these different characters. Right. And it became like, you know, like landscape after landscape after landscape after landscape. And it is just like what Adriano just does better than everybody else. And basically, you know, the future future state came out and then it was like, oh man. You know, I don't like I said, I'm not I'm not taking credit for it because I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but it was like, okay, yeah, we need to figure out this Aquaman thing now. Like we need to figure out like a long-term plan for Aquaman. And then that became, um, you know, Aquaman the Becoming and Black Manta, which I think Chuck might've already been attached to already, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like this big, it wasn't a big thing yet. And then the idea became, you know, let's do a Jackson Hyde book and get him established, you know, as Aquaman in his own right let's do a Black Manta book. And then when we're done, let's smash it all together and then do another 
Aquaman ongoing. And then that See, became Aquaman. everything. And it's like you it was crazy because you kept just adding to the list of things that I wanted to talk to you about the more we were trying <laughs> to set this up because it was like bam Aqu- like, like, like Aquaman stuff. Then it was like bam milestone stuff. Bam yeah. Aquaman and I'm like wait, wait. And it was just like I kept adding to it. And and my big and the biggest question that like I I really want to pose that like when it comes to Jackson as a character uh-huh. is are we like like when it when it comes to the, like this entire landscape that's sort of like we don't know if Future State is still going to like be the end goal of yeah. DC right we right. don't know what the timeline is going to be and right. the one thing that I really want to know is are we going to see a Miles Morales effect and what I mean by that is we're still living in a universe where Miles Morales just turned I believe uh, ten years old and uh-huh. and we still haven't seen him take the Amazing Spider Man title from Peter. We are living right. in a universe right now where Ben Riley has come back and everyone's groaning. And right. my biggest fear is are we, are we going to see that where we start propping Jackson up to be the successor and then we we still want Arthur to be on the main page because of Momoa or because of this or that or the white nerds explode in anger about this of having a gay black man be Aquaman. Are we going to see right. this retread of the same issue that we keep seeing where we start leaning into the diversity and creating the new generation and then we back up because of backlash from from, from the, the, the vocal minority? Like, I, I well, really want to pose that well, question to you. Well, okay, Here, here's here's what I'd say. I'd say that I'm, you know, I know everything that you're saying. Like I, I've, you know, I've. Been it's like here. it's a hard thing to pose to you because, like, obviously you're not fully well, yeah, controlled. Yeah, it, it, no, no, it is. But just as a fan, I will, I will tell you my impression, and I will tell you what I think is different now that wasn't before. So, okay. and and you you post two great examples, right? Miles Morales. And um, let's say uh, Spider Gwen. This is this is I, I think this is a you know this is an example that definitely works. Okay. When those characters were introduced, there was a lot of backlash mm-hmm. to uh, the characters existing, right? Right. Just just existing. I'm I'm not even talking about. And this is you know this is like a larger issue. And, 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 and kind of like my pet peeve about humanity right now is kind of disingenuousness. Mm-hmm. People that know better pretend that they don't so that they basically can pretend to be outraged by things. Mm-hmm. Like basically anyone that knows anything about comics, even on a very base level, knows that the heroes are always dying getting lost in space, getting their memories wiped, getting their powers taken away, blah, blah, blah. Right. The character always comes back. They always come back in almost the exact same form that they were in when they died, mm-hmm. right? So personally, I don't have a lot of, I don't, I don't have a lot of response to people pretending that they don't know that. Right. Let's just say that, right? When Superman was killed... You had four people people stepping up trying to replace him and then he came back. People knew he was going to come back, 
right? This right. is some like what you have is you have a bunch of comics nerds that are pretending that they're part of the mainstream. Uh-huh. So when Superman is killed to the mainstream, that means he's killed. Mm-hmm. When Superman is killed to a comics fan, they know, oh, this is going to be a story and a whole thing, and then he's going to come back, and then that will be the story. Then it'll be the return of Superman. If right. Batman gets his back broken, there's going to be like a successor, and there's going to be a whole story, and then something will happen, and then his back will be healed, and it'll come back, and he'll be Batman, right? So right. when you have, you know, I'm sorry, this is turning into like a massive... No, no, this is cool, because like, I, I already have like a counter-argument to what yeah, you're yeah. saying, and but, I, I want to see how you play this This is already out. turning into like a massive, you know, fucking tangent. But basically, it. you have a bunch of people that know comics and know how comics work, typically, and they know that those characters are basically going to come back. Mm-hmm. So when you have people that get upset about, you know, Miles Morales, you know, oh, they're killing... Peter Parker in a different universe and replacing him with Miles Morales, but the other grown Peter Parker is still Spider-Man and this is going to continue to be Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And you're pretending that they don't know that, you know, just to generate clicks and to basically pretend that they're like pissed off mm-hmm. about something. You know, th- these people are these people are sad and they're they're fucking bored and they just to me, <laughs> if you attack the people that make comics, and if you attack comics, you don't fucking love comics. Ooh, so I did it on a shirt. Then you have a bunch of people that pretend to love comics, and they pretend that they're protecting comics, but it's, but it's like, no, you don't. You don't fucking love comics, because if you love comics, you would just love comics. There, there, there isn't, shouldn't be like an asterisk. I just love comics as long as the exact same characters are featured, the exact same creators are featured, the exact same things happen over and over. The, if, if it's conditioned on things like that that don't matter, then you don't fucking love comics. Like right. if you love comics, you don't attack the people that make comics for, you know, I mean, Nobody's buying, you know, mansions out here from, you know, from like comic script money. I mean, not, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of us are, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I will say about that is those are the rules for the big characters. What we're talking about are the rules for the marginalized characters, right? So right. the rules for the marginalized characters are a little different, but let me see if I can like square this circle. So people, Miles Morales, oh, we're so mad. Oh, like, oh, Spider-Gwen, oh, we're so mad. We hate this book. Why does it exist? So you fast forward. First of all, those characters still exist. They Mm -hmm. still have their own books. They still have their own prominence. And then you get to the current day. And what do you have now? I have an almost um, five-year-old son who is obsessed with Spidey and his amazing friends. Oh, I love that show. For that show. Love that show. Peter Parker, Miles Morales, Gwen Stacy. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that you in, endure all of that bullshit on the comic side, which to the corporations, let's be honest, doesn't even fucking matter. Mm. So you can get to the point where you're like, okay, we want to make a new, you know, Spider-Man kids show. We want to use the Spider-Man and an amazing friend's name, you know. So let's put Miles Morales 
and Gwen Stacy in it so we can have like a well-rounded developed cast right now the people that you know like you know the money makers you think the money makers give a fuck about you know comics gate or all of these you know fucking idiots they don't care you know they don't care because they need miles morales like you you just have to this is it's not just about the comics anymore it's like look at the movies look at the construction of the Marvel Cinematic Universe today versus when it first started with Iron Man. You can see everything they're doing very clearly. Look at all of the Disney Plus shows. Mm -hmm. Almost every single one of those Disney Plus shows have had prominent female villains. And I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry if I'm like spoiling this for people, but you know, like you have, and I don't know if you're even, you know, caught up on oh i am you're good you know you have sylvie you have sharon carter becoming the power broker you have um uh uh the you have the countess or contessa she's had like 18 different names right you you have um you know you have a new black widow who we're we're not sure like (laughs) what's gonna happen next week right we're not sure what she's gonna be like the next time we see her you know, and you can see that now we have Captain Marvel, we have Black Panther, we're getting Ms. Marvel. And all of these things originated in the comics. Mm-hmm. And you endure all of this kind of noise about this stuff in the comics so that you can get the characters that you need in the entertainment medias that will really... I don't want to say matter because, you know, I love comics more than anything, but you, but you know what I mean, right? There is, there is a future in like, in there being, you know, a Miles Morales and there being a Duke Thomas and there being a Jackson Hyde. So when I'm writing Jackson, I don't know what the future of Jackson Hyde is going to be like, if I can stay in it long enough, I feel like maybe I can kind of tip the scale in a way, just in a sense to mm. show that this is a really kind of like cool character with a cool history and an interesting kind of emotional kind of stance and viewpoint that I think people can plug into. But there is always, anytime it's us, there's always risk. And right. And, and I would rather... I would rather do, I would rather, my job is to make it impossible for DC to get rid of Jackson High. Mm. Like as, as, as one of the stewards of the character right now at this very moment. And again, this is not like just me, right? This is not just my version of Jackson or, you know, this is, this is a collaboration. But when I, when I take on, characters like this when i take on a you know a character like curtis metcalf Mm, we're gonna get there we're gonna get there yeah yeah my job is to make it so you can't get rid of that character Mm. my job is to entrench him into the d to knit him in the dc universe as tightly as possible that if 
if I'm not writing Aquaman and you know, whatever it is, let's say five years, we'll just throw it out. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's probably not gonna last that long because comics usually doesn't. But let's say, you know, five years, you know, I'm not writing Aquaman anymore and I just, you know, go off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. If I've done my job, whoever comes after me has to deal with Jackson Hyde. They can't just jettison him and put him like in a tube and be like, oh, okay, well, you know, the black writers went away now. So, you know, now it's back to, now it's back to whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just look at it like that. Like, I, you know, I understand the fear. I understand the, the anxiety mm-hmm. that, that, you know, is around, you know, these like quote unquote diverse characters. But I think that there is like a pipeline for these characters that didn't exist before right okay. dc is about to do another kids based uh batman show called batwheel that looks so cute i love it, it does and my son is gonna just gonna love it to death and the robin on that is it's Duke Duke. Thomas, right so that's why that's why you make these characters right you don't just they're for the comics yes but you know and i'll i'll just say it here personally right you know I want to make sure, and, and you know, any little thing that I can do to make sure that like Jackson Hyde shows up in the next Aquaman movie or the one after that is mm-hmm. basically like what I'm going to do. Like I always keep that in the back of my mind and there's right. always kind of like a respect and a, and a, and a responsibility for these characters that kind of supersedes you know, like working with other characters, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I just, I always am conscious of the fact that these are great opportunities, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to waste it. And my job is to basically make it impossible to do an Aquaman book or an Aquaman family related book that Jackson Hyde is not an immense part of and like an immense you know, kind of presence in the book. Like that, that's, that, that's my job. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's part of the job, you know, when I'm kind of, when we're figuring out these stories, figuring out these scripts, I want to always, you always have to challenge the characters. You always have to put them in situations that they don't want to be in. And sometimes you have to be very cruel to the characters, which sometimes I just, I don't enjoy. I don't mm-hmm. enjoy. There is, there is an upcoming scene in Excellence 12 that I just, just didn't write just for just weeks. I just didn't want to write the scene. I just didn't. It was just, it was, it was awful and it was heartbreaking. And I just, you know, I, I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but eventually it has to be done. You know, the right. story dictates that it, that it has to be done. But you know, I am never going to, um, I'm never going to brutalize or diminish or I'm just, I'm, I'm never going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Jackson's going to have big problems and big things that he has to deal with, but I am never going to take a Black character and like, just, I'm not going to degrade you know, you don't want to, you're not going to degrade any character, but when you're working with the black and brown ones, it's mm. just extra. Like, I'm always trying to find ways 
to uh, did you read my my uh, bat? Did you read not mine? Me and Kari's uh, black and white story that we did for Batman. I did. Okay, so you'll know that there's a scene in it. There's a scene in it where basically Batman has to fight a bunch of you know like mind controlled you know uh, dudes. You know mm. like Mad Hatter. You know has control of them. Now when I'm writing that script, I'm like, I'm not gonna write a script where Batman is beating up a bunch of brothers in a community center. Oh, you know. I'm not going to do it. It can't so be what done. do we do instead? We just have Batman just knocking the hats off of the guys. So he's not even fighting the guys, really. He's fighting he's the just, hats. Yeah, he's just getting rid of the mechanism that's basically controlling their minds. And I'm just talking about different little things like that that, to me personally, matter. You know, that that putting that sort of imagery, like I'm not gonna ask Kari Randolph to draw Batman beating up a bunch of brothers. You know, you can't do it. That that would be like horrible I'm, optics I'm not, regardless. I'm and, and even, you know, all things are supposed to be equal. And so all things are not equal, right? And that may be okay for someone else to do, but I'm not gonna do that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be, and I'm, and I'm not going to hide that I'm doing that. In the script, I'm like, I'm not going to have a scene where Batman beats up a bunch of brothers. So this is what we're going to do instead, and this is going to be just as cool, and Batman is going to look just as surgical and badass as he ever looked because he knows, oh, these dudes are mind control. So if I knock their hats off, they'd be good, right? Ooh, so, you know, it. I don't have to, you know, pound them, you know, like in, in, in the, the turf to get my point across. So like those little those little things, those little moments, those like decisions, to me, that's why I'm at DC now. That perspective, that willingness, that additional thought that goes into these things mm-hmm. is like, that's why I'm here. I mean, I had a, a, a page and um, I was finishing up uh, The Becoming Six recently. Uh, and um, there is a moment where initially Mara like headbutts one of the um, uh, black female characters. Oh. And I was like, no, let's do something different. Thank God. <laughs> because the the story called for that, right? So the story is like, you know, the story is like Mara gets her revenge, right? Mm-hmm. But when I'm writing it, I'm like, no, that doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And then, so I figured out another way to express the same point, but the point doesn't involve a black woman getting headbutted by a white woman. And obviously, mm-hmm. in the in the you know the context of the book, that's not what it is. But visually, it, that's yeah. what it is. So, right, it's dealing with the, you know, the kind of visuals and kind of the larger context of mm-hmm. the stories. Okay. So, you know, that, that's kind of how I approach it. So, like I said, I know that was a very long answer to that question. No, no, it's cool. I, 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 yeah. I, I understand. I understand the anxiety. And we are not always going to always get it right. But like I said, my job is to make it impossible 
for them to get rid of Jackson. Okay. In every scene, every line, every moment, every reveal, every, you know, whatever is with that in mind. Because okay. I know Arthur is fine. Mara is fine. Andy is fine. They will be there. They will continue to be there. And my job on top of everything else, you know, which, which we're, you know, trying to accomplish with this book is to basically stitch Jackson Hyde into the Aquaman book so that he can't be removed. So that if they, if whoever wants to remove him, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, why did you try to take Jackson out of this book? Why are you trying to act like Jackson Hyde doesn't matter? Because we have all of this evidence, you know, from however many issues or whatever, that he does matter. And we Mm -hmm. like it that he matters. And we expect him to matter now and into the future. So, Okay. I, I, like that, that was a great way of, of answering that question because, mm-hmm. like, obviously you don't you don't know every piece of the board, but the fact that you're willing to fight means a lot. Now, the final piece of uh-huh. the pu- of, of the puzzle that I want to get to because there you just like, like like I said you kept adding to the pile was we we had we had we had to get to him was Curtis Metcalf. What was yeah. literally my man from when I was a small lad. I literally I kid you not, I have number one from the from the original and number one from, like from that came out recently right here next to me because like just the transcendence that has occurred. And I gotta say, what you have done in these few issues is balls to the wall. I what I think like people like Dwayne and Dennis wanted to do back then and you just kicked it up a notch because you. you flat out like 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 went to the like, like went to the pavement you you made Alva say like 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 the way I quantified it when I explained it to somebody recently was you basically made um uh, Edwin Alva say the speech from the boy season two that the head guy does where he flat out says that sort of, sort of like the reverse where and, and like in the boy's case it was a black man can't step out of his lane but in this case you have Alva saying I'm the white man of course I'm gonna blame you of course I'm gonna use you as a pawn and of course they're gonna believe me and it was yeah. just that foundational break of just finally calling out the, 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 the everything and explaining the, the victimization on such a, like, like, a finite level for anyone to understand was just so groundbreaking and it just blew me away and like I'll admit, kind of broke my heart that how, how you and Dennis kind of went screw the secret identity. We got, yeah. we, we, got we got phones now. We don't need secret identities. I'm like, yeah, I that's fine, but like, yeah, uh, it hurt my heart. But in general, yeah. I just what 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 is it? Uh, first, like, I have like I have like three different questions to pose because I like you very much like like, like sort of encapsulate every question in a, in a long form way, and I love that. So first thing. What is it like getting to step into the Hall of Milestone and be on that level? The second question that I have is, what is it like being able to sort of transform and transcend what was done before with these characters? 
And three, what does it feel like being trusted to do this alongside being able to now, and obviously you can't talk about everything with it because of NDAs and such, but to be able to talk about the movie and be able to do that. Like, what is it like being able to be where these men were all those years ago and raise it to the next bar? Okay, I'm going to be honest. Working on uh, the milestone books and the milestone characters is terrifying. I'll just I'll just be honest. There is no right. other book. There is no other book that I'm working on that I'm like scared to write. That I'm you know that I'm that I'm like oh oh it's time to okay it's time to do another script <laughs> and uh, you know I'll I'll you know it's for all of those reasons that you said. It's be it's because when my father was taking me to uh, the fiction house, when Milestone launched. So basically, we would go to the, the, the store together, and there would be two stacks that would come home. There would be my stack, which was, you know, Batman image, uh, Spider-Man, you know, stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. there would be his stack that was um, the books that he liked as a kid. So Fantastic Four, Green Lantern, the Flash. So there are all of these characters that I kind of, you know, grew up as, uh, grew up knowing as like, oh, these are dad's comics. They're not dad's comics, obviously, because he's not reading them. I'm reading them, but mm-hmm. he's buying them because he used to love these characters. And so he's trying to steer me towards them, you know, trying to, you know, steer me away from like Cyber Force and into the Flash. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, on, even in that time, I was always like a little resistant. Like I would always read dad's comics last, right? Right. You know? Inspire me. I'm going to read Ted Drake first. Okay. So anyway, when Milestone came out, that became, oh, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah it's kind of a tone okay, shift, cool. but everything should be good. Yeah, cool. I'm sorry. There you go. Take that part out. But it, it, of his staff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't understand. He had to, obviously he had to explain the significance of it to me. Like I was so young and I was so new to the game that I didn't realize the notability of the milestone comics oh. at the time, even though they were they were getting bought and I was reading them. I didn't know the larger context. Like, I didn't know how special Milestone was at the time. Like, the way, what they were doing, the way the company was constructed as an imprint inside of DC Comics, Mm -hmm. which gave them, you know, kind of resources, but preserved enough autonomy for them that they felt like they could actually do things they couldn't do in DC Comics. I didn't know any of that at the time when I was just reading them and just like, oh, this is, you know, this is awesome. I love hardware. Like, I love, like, who's this guy? You know, (laughs) the thing too, where it's like, Dennis Cowan, who's he? What has he done before? And then that went to his previous work too, just like it did with the image guys. Like I almost treated them, anything that had a number one on it, I was obsessed with because I was like, I could have all I could have all of it. Like I felt like I was starting the race at the same time as everyone else. So milestone and those books were like a huge part of my relationship with comics, but I didn't understand 
milestone, mm-hmm. right? If that makes any sense. Total sense. It and I was enjoying it, but I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how notable it was, and I didn't understand how special it was. Now, <laughs> I know too much. So I know too much about milestone, too much about the people that created it, too much about the conditions under which it created which it was created, the conditions that made it difficult for it to exist and other, mm-hmm. you know, certain ages. So basically Milestone, those are like the books that I know like too much about. So this was also like kind of late in the game. They came to me and they're like, uh, you want to, first of all, they're like, do you want to pitch for hardware? And then they gave me like a synopsis of like what hardware was and like who he was. And it was <laughs> because I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, you, no, I know all of this, but you you want me to you want me to pitch? Like you want me to pitch for hardware? Like yeah, and, and we need it in like a week if you can do it. Like oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so that was that was cool because I didn't have time to overthink it. I didn't have time to overthink what I was doing. And the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about kind of today's version of hardware was all about, uh, again, sports analogies. It's all about um, who and who doesn't deserve things. Mm. So I started thinking about professional Black athletes, mostly Black quarterbacks, because I'm just obsessed with football, Mm -hmm. and how people respond to them versus how they used to respond to them like 10 years ago. So, you know, the landscape for black quarterbacks has completely opened up and exploded. You know, I would just say like in the last decade, mm-hmm. but I distinctly remember when it wasn't that way. I distinctly remember when this lie had been told that, you know, like, you know, the, the black man didn't possess the intellect necessary in order to play quarterback. You know, quarterback is mm-hmm. this position everyone else is just out there running around and crashing into each other but the quarterback is he's analyzing what he sees and he's making split second decisions and you know all of these things that we had been you know had been told for so long and are still told today let's be real honestly we can't do and that we don't deserve and then also Mm -hmm. you think about how people treat athletes when they do things they don't like you think about Colin Kaepernick. You think about, I mean, just a, just a laundry list of like, you're fine as long as you're running around out there and throwing a ball or catching a ball and putting your, you know, your body and your ability to just, you know, walk around, you know, on the line. That's fine. But we don't want to hear anything else from you. Like, you don't deserve to have any voice or any impact past that. So that's the kind of mind state that I went into when I pitched this version of hardware. And to me, it just made so much sense that, you know, Curtis is, you know, the quarter for all intents and purposes, you know, Curtis is like the quarterback of this team. You know, Alvis, his coach or his GM or whatever, these guys are having great success together. They've known each other forever. Mm-hmm. They make each other a ton of money. They have what Curtis believes is like a real relationship that is based on like, you know, mutual respect and a mutual interest in each other being successful. And then 
you know, Curtis is like, hey, man, you know, I want more money. Like, hey, man, I want a, a say in like, you know, the type of players and stuff that we're, you know, acquiring or drafting because right. it really impacts what I'm doing. You know, and out, you know, and you know what Alvis, I'm not, I'm not going to say what Alvis is going to say, but Alvis is, you know, going to make that face in him and it's like, mm-hmm. who told you that you were in a position to ask me for anything past what I'm giving you. And like, like, why do you think that would be a thing? And so that's essentially their relationship in this kind of new version of hardware, not, not even new, but you know, re, not retelling as it were for a new yeah, generation. Yeah, 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 right. So and to me, the very first, I read my scripts out of order, like a crazy person. Like I doing a script to me is like, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Like I do not write, you know, one to 20 or one to 22. I write whatever scene that I'm kind of like feeling the most. And the first thing I wrote for Hardware One was the scene between him and Alva. Because... I felt personally that if that scene did not work, if that scene did not do what it was supposed to be doing, the whole thing would just unravel. And it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean anything. Okay. So the first thing I wrote for that issue was Curtis on the roof, Alva in his office, and then just verbally sparring. And Alva being like, you know, I made you. I made you like you wouldn't be nothing. There wouldn't be a Curtis Metcalf without me. Mm -hmm. And now you're like coming up on me. Like, like I owe you more. All of these things that I've given to you and all of these things that I have put in front of you and you asking me for more and acting like and getting upset (laughs) when I say no. See, like that was the crazy part about what you did there was Alva having the gall to say that when yes. he straight up strategically picked Curtis from the like from the like the the, 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 the what's the one I'm looking for here as I'm stuttering my life away um like from the impoverishment that he had and brought him to the next level because he wanted him to feel like he was given everything that way yes. he would never step out of his lane he wanted him to feel like he never had that silver spoon he was gifted that spoon to grow and right. now that the Curtis is stepping out of his lane he's trying to sort of gaslight him into backing down and now you're like, like, like you sort of paint the double perspective of alva in a new light because like yeah we saw alva in the background of the static tv show but no one really got to understand what alva did unless you read the hardware book and now that you're fully expanding on what was done previously it's just the the the, the, the overlapping of the narrative especially now with today's current climate you're oh, you're, yes. you're, you're diving yes. head first yes. into what needs to be talked about and only a couple of issues uh, thank you. I, it was just, it was really, to me, that felt like this is what hardware needs to be like in 2021. Like, you can't have this relationship. And, I, you know, and, and, and it's it's hidden, not, probably not, hopefully not too well, and all of the explosions and the running around. And But there's real, Curtis is feeling real pain. You know, mm-hmm. Curtis is feeling real betrayal. 
over this relationship that he thought was a real thing, but it, and, and, and it was a real thing, but if the relationship only works under the terms of one person, then it's not a true, it's not a true relationship. Their relationship worked fine when Curtis was doing what Alva expected him to do and not asking for anything else. And the mm. second that he did, their entire relationship changes like on a dime. And then Curtis and like many of us that this has happened to or similar things have happened to, you go back and you start thinking about all of these situations that happened in the past and like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh, is that what he was on? Then, you know, I, I thought I thought it was something else. But I mean, it just really felt, I mean, you have this, this relationship between, you know, like an, an older white, you know, an older, successful, rich, affluent, privileged white dude and kind of his young, you know, black genius apprentice. And it was just, it was right there. And it just mm. felt like, it felt irresponsible in this day and age to treat their relationship as like, something that is common and something that is mutually beneficial for both sides forever and ever. And it was just, it was just right there. Like to me, it felt like very low hanging fruit. And especially in this, this day and age that we're in when we're dealing with uh, disingenuousness Mm -hmm. and gaslighting and people that are obviously people that know it's just it's, it's like one of those things it's like you people pretend that they don't know what white privilege is mm. they, they pretend they they behave as if like i need this to be explained to me in a very clear patient you know i need this explained to me very slowly and very mm. clearly and very whatever and then maybe i would understand and accept it this is my this is the this is the best way this is not mine i saw i feel like i saw someone do this maybe like in a ted talk or something like that mm-hmm. so these people that claim that they don't understand white privilege they don't understand systemic racism it's like here's 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 what you here's how you prove that they that they're liars right mm-hmm. there is no I won't say no. There are very few, you know, kind of white Americans living in this country that if someone came up to them and said, hey, look, would you like to make the exact same amount of money that you're making now? You're making the, you know, you live in in a comparable neighborhood. Uh, You have a comparable wife and children. Would you like to live the rest of your life as a black man in America, you have the same amount of money, same kind of education, same neighborhood, same family structure. Mm. Would you do that? And 98, I won't say 98%, 99.8% of those people would say, hell no. Mm. And you know why that is? Because they know what white privilege is. They know what systemic racism is. They know that they are benefiting from a system that has been propped up to protect and exalt them 
and degrade everyone else. Mm. So to me, it just made it was it would it was it would be malpractice to pretend that this was an equal relationship between the two of them. And you know, and it was all there. It was all there in Dwayne's original issue. And I, you know, and this actually took some some thought and discussion, but there's actually uh, like a monologue and exchange from that original issue that is in the new issue. And, you know, for a while I was like, oh, you know, should I do it? But it's just, it's one of the most perfect monologues that I've ever read in any comic ever. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show that what Dwayne did is universal and it translates to any age in any year and to me that was my way of basically that was my way of basically saying Dwayne was right well you know that, that the one, one of my greatest metaphors of, of of what's been going on recently is we live in a world where the majority of DC comics is white and then to the point where and, and like and then you have like Bendis coming in and trying to like do, do a couple things there, but then the biggest way you can tell that no one learned from what Dwayne was saying that the Justice League was too white is when they brought Mike Brian and Michael Bendis in, and they have a, the first issue of his Justice League run where the Justice League is saying that we're too white, and they they hit the nail on the head again by then bringing on the black girl who's named after the guy that told us we were too white and that we still haven't learned our lesson after that book has come out that tells you right there of how progress is still being halted yes so i you know you gonna say i love bendis and his work oh no he's amazing it's just like that's my my ultimate metaphor as to what the issue is there is, you know, Miles Morales' father was named, I believe, Jefferson Davis, mm-hmm. which is like a famous, like, Confederate general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, <laughs> it, it basically shows you that you can't, you can't do the job with the same creators, even right. the most, you know, well-meaning liberal quote-unquote knowledgeable creators can still make critical errors that no black person would ever make Mm -hmm. you know no black person would have accidentally named miles's father after a a confederate general Mm -hmm. it just wouldn't it just you know it just wouldn't happen and you know these things you know these things are going to occur and the thing that's really exciting to me you know, in this kind of current, the current version of, you know, DC Comics is I'm working there. Chuck Brown is working there. Mm -hmm. John Ridley is there. Brandon Easton is there. Jeffrey Thorne, who's writing Green Lantern, is there. So I believe there is an acknowledgement that, you know, we cannot leave this in the hands of our same kind of creative stable, not mm-hmm. by themselves. And that's not to say that, you know, no one gets to write, you know, the black and brown characters, but us, because mm-hmm. that's silly. But they can't do it by themselves. 
else. And, you know, and that's not, and that's fine, right? That's not an indictment, you know, and any, anytime people talk about this, they get, you know, all up in their feelings and they want to be, you know, you know, they want to just be like, are you, are you just, are you saying, it's like, I'm saying that you can't do it in a vacuum. You have created a vacuum and you've created an echo chamber where you are the only voices and yours is the only knowledge that is going into the creation of these books and these characters. And that's not enough. It's like, you need, you need some help. Everybody needs some help. Mm. And there is no shame and it's not an indictment for these companies to acknowledge that, hey, you know what? If we want to have like diverse characters like in these books and we want the fans to really gravitate toward them and feel that they're like, this is like a real like good faith, sincere effort to kind of quote unquote change things, then we, we, we got to get some other, we got to get some more people. Mm-hmm. we gotta get some more people we gotta get some different writers and we have to give them opportunities right you know, to tell some of these stories because we can't leave it in the hand of you know the most liberal well-meaning you know most well-rounded white guy that we have right right and that's just not with you know it's not just with um you know diversity it's with gender it's 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 with everything so I'm I'm hopeful, mind you. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a foolish man. Mm-hmm. So I am not sitting here and saying that the job is done. And we got a long way to go. Brandon's gonna fix it, fix all of it for now. But right now, these last couple of years and the years that are that are coming, I think will demonstrate that there is value, monetary value, in making sure that these characters are um, nurtured and developed and respected, right? Because mm. here it is, and I'll try to, try to bring it all around. Perfect. It took 10 years to get Miles Morales on like another screen. Well, maybe, maybe 10 years. I'm, I'm not sure when Spider-Verse came out, right? Mm-hmm. What if what if it took five years? If we have the right creators in place, if we have the right stewards of these characters, maybe it doesn't take 10 years mm-hmm. before we can put that character into other things. Okay. Like, Will the value in Jackson Hyde be demonstrated faster if me and Chuck are writing him versus, you know, someone who is not Chuck or me writing him? Right. So that's the, you know, the quicker, you know, like I said, viability. I want Jackson Hyde to start showing up in Aquaman movies. I want him to take every form and every format that he possibly can. Mm. And that is just, 
that's how I approach him and that's how I approach, you know, all of the characters. I mean, when we're, we're talking about, you know, milestone and talking about fear, a couple of things were important. When I pitched for the book, they did not tell me Dennis was going to draw it, which was the best. It was an accidental decision, I think, on their part, but it was great. If I knew that Dennis was going to draw that book, I would have fallen apart. <laughs> and, and he would like, you know, he'll lie, you know, he'll laugh if, you know, whenever he hears that story. But, you know, that's like the honest, that's the honest truth of it. When they said, you know, can you pitch hardware? I was like, yeah, but, but I'm scared to death to do it. But, you know, I only had a small, I had a very small window to get that pitch back to them, which meant that I had to trust my initial instincts. I couldn't overthink it. I couldn't just be like, oh, well, you know, let's just, you know, keep trying to find like, this is what I feel about Curtis Metcalf right now. And mm-hmm. the entire pitch was about this idea of deserving. And it was about Curtis knowing that he deserved more and Alva refusing to acknowledge that and him pretending that everything that he's ever accomplished was because of him. You know, Alva mm-hmm. thinks it's him. He's the reason that Curtis Metcalf is Curtis Metcalf. And so this book is basically Curtis proving that that's bullshit. That he is Curtis Metcalf. And even, mm-hmm. if, you, even if he had never met Alva, he would still be a genius. He would still be doing great things. It would just be in a different form. Right. Maybe in a different arena. But he didn't he didn't make him. And to me, that that speaks to me very personally, because, you know, just as a, you know, a black creator, you know, these editors are not making me right. They're giving me opportunities that I feel my previous work has demonstrated that I deserve. Mm. Right. So that's kind of how, you know, mentally, that's just kind of how I'm approaching it. And so when it came to the, you know, the animated movie, which I can't talk a ton about, obviously, mm, yeah. but when, when the, when the initial kind of ask went out, when they initially kind of contact me, I'm like, oh, we're thinking about this thing. Me, I'm thinking about um, DC's, you know, previous history with their animated uh, movies. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I know what this is. I know what it is. They want to do an animated feature based on my first hardware arc and I got all excited and I'm like oh there are all these things that I didn't have the space for in the comic that I could you know now put in this thing and it'll it'll be awesome I'm ready I'm ready so we, I get in front of them we're on the phone and so I'm just waiting I'm like yeah they're gonna say hey we want you, you know we want you to do um you know your hardware arc as an animated movie and then they were like I, I won't even say no 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 we we want something original. Oh. We want something original with multiple characters in it. That's amazing. And I was like, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> now we have to go back to the drawing board. And I was just so, I thought it was something that was like so much small. And it's not small, obviously, because this this will be the first you know, animated um, 
not animated thing because we have static shock right mm-hmm. and static shock is very 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 important to basically the 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 stewardship of milestone and mm-hmm. basically how the animated series was able to basically carry the torch you know once the books were no longer around mm-hmm. on a, you know on a regular basis so i don't want to ever diminish uh you know the power of that animated series because also Dwayne doing that series led to him doing Justice League, which also is like enormously important to kind of like the history and hierarchy in the mythology of like the DC animated universe. Most definitely. Dwayne McDuffie gave to it and gave to these characters. But I was, you know, emotionally at that time, I was just, I wasn't prepared. Like I was so confident that I knew exactly what it was they were intending. And what they were intending was so, so much more, was so much bigger and so like more meaningful if we do it the way we're supposed to, to do it. And so it was pretty, it was pretty mind blowing and it is, you know, pretty mind blowing as we, as we work on it. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's, you know, it's humbling to, uh, to have these opportunities. And more than that, it's humbling to know that I deserve the opportunity. Most definitely. It's humbling to know that my work, my persistence, my refusal to be killed or stopped or stymied has basically turned into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there was a period of time when I did not think I would ever do anything for DC Comics or DC Entertainment or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. ever. And now, like 75 to 80% of the stuff I'm writing is for DC, and I'm writing an animated movie. And it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. And it's it's really it, it's really exciting, and I'm you know thankfully I've, I've been doing this long enough, and I'm mature enough to understand that that I do deserve it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I suffer from many <laughs> many writer common writer afflictions, but you know, thankfully, like imposter syndrome has never been and I want to say never but maybe you know in this these last kind of five to seven years there is no imposter syndrome in me uh, mm-hmm. especially in regards to comics right right the stuff I've said my extensive history you know in comics and with comics I like to tell this story I never gave up on comics there's a lot of people that are like oh I discovered girls or oh I started drinking and I just dropped com-. I ain't never dropped off comics Mm. like i said i pursued comics and girls in equal measure like it was never something that like was hidden it was never something that i was ever like embarrassed about or that i felt like i had to hide from people and i just feel like all of the things that i've done in comics there is no one else that deserves to be writing comics more than me like Mm. there is if if i am an imposter (laughs) If I don't belong in this space right now, 
that nobody fucking deserves mm. to be in this space because I have I've given and will continue to give you know my you know creative just output to comics and they just you know it just means so much to me so thankfully I don't have to deal maybe when I get a little further into the animated movie maybe I'll be like oh man I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but in comics like there is no there is no imposter syndrome but there, there, there's Excellent. no one there there are few people I feel in and around comics that can even form their mouth to allege that you know that I somehow don't deserve to be here it's like mm. no no I was born to be here and that's why I'm here that's so, perfect I, I I love that so much like so, yeah. um honestly Mr. Thomas thank thank you like I, I, it, it's crazy because like the more I've dug into what you've created, you've touched so much of what I've done and and everything that I've read. And getting to talk to you and hearing your passion means the world to me. But I, I, like just um, I, but like before I cut the recording and we finish up, I, I always allow like like every member who comes on panel to panel to to like have a. Um, closing statements. So, what would be your closing statement to the fans out there? Uh, my my closing statement to the fans, to the com- to the real comics fans, mm. right? People that love comics don't attack the people making comics. And right. I would say to keep the faith. There are changes that are happening. Not as many as they're deserved to be. Mm. but you know we're, we're we're out here we're out here and we're not going anywhere and recently people have waken up to the fact that they've basically been leaving talent resources and money on the table mm. and they some people have decided that they want to go after that and that mindset is why I'm doing what I'm doing right now and don't quit it's hard it's impossible but if you get to do it it is so rewarding and mm. so exciting and it is so fun and you remember the difficult periods but you not that you appreciate them, but you you understand, right? Without right. those difficult periods, I wouldn't have been able to write excellence. And excellence is the one project that has just opened so many doors for me. And I'm mm. so grateful to the people that you know were that stood by me, you know, years before that, who were my allies before it was cool, you know, who would return my calls and my emails when they didn't have to. Right. And so, you know, and, and try to, you know, try to be nice to people. You know, it, it, it pays off. It pays off in, in brilliant and wonderful and unexpected ways. And there are people that I'm working with now that used to read my column back in like <laughs> 2002 and 2003. So, you know, most just, of uh, keep, Keep, keep fighting and keep pushing 
And don't let anybody tell you that you don't belong somewhere. Mm. And if someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, uh, here's some money, write this thing. You know, you, you don't you don't need any additional validation past that. Mm-hmm. These companies are not handing out money for no reason. It just it doesn't happen. Right. Not handing out money. <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. if, if they if they want to get if they want to work with you, if they want to partner with you, there's a reason why. And always, you know, always keep that in mind on the on the on the tough days. All right, you just listened to Brandon Thomas and I shooting the breeze and talking about comic books and such because we care about this industry. As I said in the beginning, please support a local comic book shop and check out all of Brandon Thomas's work along with with great artists like Emilio Lopez, like Kari Randolph that he talked about in this brain in this brand new episode for you good folks from the other books like Excellence to their work with him on things like Aquaman the Becoming and the upcoming Aquaman. Please support these books because they are phenomenal pieces of work. You can check them at a local comic book shop or you can look at them on uh, Comixology because you can use an affiliate link from your local comic book shop just ask them because they more than likely have one that you can check out with them and support them through all their endeavors um you can check this podcast out on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher radio spotify youtube pandora amazon music and audible wherever you can listen to a podcast you can listen to us except for soundcloud because we don't support soundcloud so please make sure you check us out you can check out the podcast on twitter at ptp underscore podcast and you can check out the website on twitter at comics underscore unmasked and comicsunmasked.com where you can check out all of our latest reviews previews and solicitations Thank you so much for this. Uh, and we will check you guys right here next time, right here at Panel 2 Panel. Peace out.